Welcome to this podcast from the Oxford International Centre for Publishing Studies at Oxford Brookes University. In this podcast, we have a talk by Michael Baskar. Michael is the Digital Publishing Manager of Profile Books, and the title of his talk is Nobody Knows Anything, Especially Publishers. The talk was given on 29th of March 2010. I don't have a PowerPoint presentation, so um, I'm almost just sort of making this up off the top of my head. So if I run out of things to say, that's when you've got to start asking lots of questions um, and coming up with interesting things. So at that point, um, yeah, just sort of start throwing things at me. And actually, in the meantime, ask me any questions anyway, um, just so, you know, it, it can just be a dialogue. Um, you know, so I know if you want lots of sort of hard information, then uh, this probably isn't um, the talk for you. It's much more um, about ideas and about a sort of a very high level view of um, what's happening in publishing. Um, I don't know if any of you, do any of you read Book Brunch or look at Book Brunch? Did any of you read my two blogs that I did in it or see them? Because that's what I'm using as a sort of the backbone of this talk, really. Um, and that's how I sort of cover some of that ground and then start thinking about um, new things. But I think first I should say, you know, how did I get into the whole sort of digital publishing thing? Um, well, I started uh, at, the, at the beginning of 2007 doing digital stuff, having previously worked in a literary agency. And when I was at the literary agency, I, I wasn't really, you know, I didn't really have a technical background or anything like that. But um, I just started to see that there was all this this slow talk about digital and it was a sort of a talk that's now become a flood. But back then it was just very minor, small, um, a few people on the edges of the industry and an occasional thing in the bookseller talking about digital. And I thought, oh, that sounds interesting. Um, and it was before any publisher had really had a digital department. So there wasn't there wasn't anywhere that you could go and do it um, and the literary agency I was at was very traditional and um, it couldn't really be bothered um, and anyway I saw a job at Macmillan Publishing and I went for it in digital um, I had no background in it whatsoever but such nobody did so um, it was actually just really easy to kind of slot in um, and so I've just been learning on the job ever since um, which is quite good in that digital has been the area where you can just do that because that there has there's no precedent there's no tradition whereas um obviously there's a lot of embedded things and everything else in publishing um so anyway that that's sort of how i got into it um so the first of the book brunch things i did which i'm going to run through is um three things that publishers don't know uh why did i decide to write that um basically because I'm just sick and tired of hearing about um, what publishers should be doing, what publishers' mistakes are. So I subscribe to a lot of email lists, go to quite a few conferences on this, um, obviously just read loads of the blogs. Um, you know, you have to try and stay on top of what is a really fast-moving things. Um, and I'm thinking of uh, an email list like the read 2.0 email list, and that's all these kind of very elite people who are talking to each other, and they're constantly up publishers should be doing this. Amazon's mistake is that it hasn't done this. And it just seemed to me that everyone was talking as if they personally knew what was going on. And everyone has this sort of great arrogance and this great sense that I know about digital. And I thought, no, that's just not true. Actually, in digital, we don't really know anything because there is no precedent. Um, 
there all the major questions in digital are still completely open. So the industry is just in the situation where we're, we're facing a great load of unknowns. And I thought it was about time we actually sort of held up our hands and said most of the decisions that we're making and most of the things that we're doing, we're doing on the back of no real knowledge. Um, I know, and the other thing that I was always thinking about is, so you go to a conference on digital and it's becoming often the same. So everyone gives the same talk and that talk will say, it's a new world. Um, you know, the world has changed, the internet's come. Okay, thanks. Uh, the second thing that says, you have to experiment. You know, you must experiment. Um, they'll say, there's a new kind of consumer. Um, and it's just always the same. And it's just always highlighting the same old things. Actually, we should start to be highlighting what we don't know, not these sort of trite and obvious things. So I'm always now a bit skeptical of a lot of conferences simply because we know what we're going to hear. But anyway, so what are the three main things? Or Well, this is what I did think. The three main things that the publishers don't know. The first is which platform will win. Uh, so by platform, I mean which mechanism for reading or retailing books um, will win. Basically, we know now, you know, well, I'll, I'll come to what we know in a minute, actually. Um, but we're facing a situation where we've got lots of big players out there. We've got Apple, we've got Amazon, we've got Google, um, who are what I call the sort of the West Coast big three. Obviously, all native technology companies, all of whom have decided that the book business is what they want to do. We don't know who is going to be the dominant person out of those. Um, all of them could be fighting each other. Um, but it's likely it's, you know, they'll, it's not a zero-sum game, but somebody's going to clean up in the end. Is it going to be Sony with their device or Samsung with their device? Um, we just don't know. We can't predict. Uh, if you go back to, say, 1990, nobody would have predicted that the dominant retailers um, come 2010 would be Amazon, an online thing, and Tesco's. Nobody would have ever thought that we'd have been in that situation. So if, you, if you're talking about the retail winners of the past 20 years, those are the two that you'd probably single out. Um, so who are we going to be singling out as the kind of big winner of the retail platform in 20 years hence? And that we just don't, we just haven't got a clue. Um, so whenever you hear a lot of talk about, oh, you know, so-and-so will be this, so-and-so will be that, actually it's just speculation because there is no way that we can know. There's no way that we can guess what Google's strategy is with regard to books. And that's what a lot of people like doing, say Google's strategy is this, that and the other. But actually we don't know where it'll turn. We don't know, for example, the way that the book, uh, the Google book search settlement will fall. And I don't know if many of you have been following that, but um, the whole Google thing is now obviously on a knife edge and it's just coming down to Judge Chin's decision. Um, again, that'll have an enormous impact. Um, so we have to recognise that we don't know what the way of people reading and buying books will be. Uh, and I think there's an extra element into this which platform will win, is that, thank God actually, that in digital is a space for innovation and it's a space for new retailers. So what we're seeing is a lot of totally new startup companies who are starting to sell books. So for example, you've got companies like Kobo on the one hand, or maybe a mobile vendor like Enhanced Editions or Stanza. What's so important about that is I think we're all slightly depressed by the fact that the number of outlets for selling books is shrinking in terms of, you know, we've lost a lot of the big bookstores um, and we're losing a lot of independence as well. Uh, and in the meantime, there's sort of an ever increasing power in the retailers that remain. So I think digital is a great chance for us to see innovation in retail happening that will open up what's happening in retail again.
The critical thing to remember, of course, is that most new businesses fail. A lot of these new businesses will fail. We just don't know which ones will survive. One of them could become the new Amazon. Probably most of them will, will be forgotten. So we don't know on the top level who, who of the big people will really sort of hammer it home. Um, and just a quick example, actually, I think everyone thought that Sony would be very much the dominant player. But then Amazon moved in. Now Apple have moved in. What? Where does that leave Sony? So Sony was the big ebook reader of two years ago. Now it may not be. So we don't know what platform will win. Um, and that's a really key point because the nature of what platform will win will ultimately dictate the nature of publishing. And as an example, I think you know we're all aware now how a company like Tesco's can dictate book jackets, can dictate buying decisions, can dictate production decisions. So it's very key that um, we, we follow who's winning this battle closely so we know how to kind of shape our responses to it. Um, so I think that's about all there is to say. Um, oh, and of course, one other point to remember is um, if people think that uh, you know, you've got these big three players, the Googles, Apples, Amazons, etc., um, it is possible for one company to, sit, to, to stitch up the market, which is what obviously Apple did with music, um, or legal music sets. So um, it, is, it is possible, even in this sort of open, new, cool realm, um, for one, one player to come in and just own everything. Um, the second question is, how many people will read ebooks? So I said in a minute I'm going to come to the four things we know, um, and there are things that we know about this. But what we still really don't know is whether it will be 5% of people, 10% of people, 50% of people. And I think this is the, the sort of the area of uh, our known unknowns where we see the wildest uh, and most rampant speculation uh, from all and sundry. Because basically anyone can sit there and very quickly put a figure on it and put that out. Um, and I've read some vastly different um, statistics on this. You know, even sort of four years ago, there were people saying, oh, within five years, it's going to be a multi-billion pound industry. But then there were people in the late 90s who were saying the same thing. Five years, it'll be a multi-billion pound industry. Um, other people say, oh, for us to get to two years, it'll, two percent, sorry, it'll take years and years. Um, so basically, anyone can go and put a figure on it. But None of it disguises the fact that we just have no sense of what the natural, ultimate proportion of reading will be done digitally. It's just not something any of us can know. And again, obviously that has a real impact because the level of digital sales and the le level of digital change will impact the way publishers shape what they do going forward. It'll impact the way writers interact with publishers, the way writers write their books. It'll impact the whole nature of production. Um, it'll impact everything. So the difference between there being 10% digital, where publishing fundamentally stays fairly, fairly the same with a little digital department on the side, and between 50% digital, when actually we're really talking about a very transformed business that bears very little relation to what we've got now, is obviously enormous. And the only way we're ever going to know this is with the unfolding of time and as it happens. Um, so I think it is, it is a sort of a very difficult um, question and we just don't know. I'm just going to check there's nothing I've missed on this. Um, 
Oh, yeah, so my one other point that I'd make is whenever you do read um, any of these figures, and if any of you are studying digital publishing, you'll read lots of them, um, it's always worth bearing in mind, I think, looking at who's saying this 10% or this 20%, this whatever, and thinking, why are they saying that? Because invariably they're saying it because they've got a hidden agenda and they want to sell their product, they want to sell their view of the way it's going. Um, so obviously, if you're a maker of e-ink screens, then you've got a very good, you've got a reason for wanting it. And so I think invariably, whenever you look at these statistics, you can always see where people are coming from when you just look at what they're doing. And there's always uh, a hidden motive. Um, and it's very easy to, to sort of unpick that um, when you go through it. And the last major thing, that when, I wrote, when I wrote this original blog for Book Brunch, that I, I thought that we really don't know the in Rumsfeld's words, um, uh, the, the known unknown, was how much will be impacted by piracy. Um, and obviously this is, again, a huge question that will fundamentally dictate the terms of engagement for the next 50 years for our whole industry. Um, obviously we've just seen that the sister industries, the content industries and the creative industries have generally been completely decimated. And it's, it's not a lie to say that um, they've been completely decimated. Um, what we just don't know is whether we're gonna have a music scenario or a TV scenario where it's sort of not quite so critical um, or whether it's gonna be something completely new. Now, at the minute, book piracy hasn't actually been a huge problem for publishers but it's becoming a massive problem. I found a website that you can go and look at the other day, which I shouldn't give you the URL of, but it, it's truly appalling and shows you what um, we are. If you look at truly-free.org, um, you'll see that the scale of this problem is, is enormous. Um, and I mean, I, I was genuinely quite appalled. Please don't download any books. Um, but I checked for um, profile books' is books on there, and I couldn't actually see any, which um, was good, but that might just mean that our books aren't getting enough attention. But um, anyway, so there, there are steps being taken. I don't know if, if any of you have heard of um, the Publishers Association portal. So the Publishers Association has created this portal where you register um, a copyright infringement and then it'll issue a takedown notice which is fine if you're dealing with a legitimate company like script.com the um, document sharing website but if you're dealing with a sort of a bit torrent um, from wherever there's they will post your takedown letter on their website um, if you go on the pirate bay you can see all the takedown letters that people have sent and you can see their responses and it is quite amusing but it's also um, quite bad if it's you know your bread and butter that's getting pirated and it is of course fundamentally illegal um, so at the moment we've got this minor threat but um, we just don't know how much it's going to impact on everything um, and I honestly don't know how much it's going to impact on anything and nobody does um, so anyway the, the, the quote that I, I used for this was one that William Gold, Goldman a uh, Hollywood scriptwriter, said about Hollywood Nobody knows anything. And that sort of seemed to capture just the general madness of the film industry, but actually it just completely captures the madness of the publishing industry as well, um, where we've got an out-of-context problem, is what somebody's called it. An out-of-context problem is um, when you know something that you have no precedent to engage with comes along. 
So if you um, were a Native American tribesman and you've just been living your whole life for centuries in a very kind of self-sufficient society and then suddenly people come with guns and cannons, then that is an out-of-context problem because you've got no mechanisms in place for being able to deal with that. And publishers have just been going along, living their life, um, publishing books, and then suddenly this internet thing comes and it's an out-of-context problem and it just comes with huge unknowns. So I actually think the more we recognise that and just hammer home that we're dealing with a situation that is very difficult, that we don't know, where we actually recognise that all the consultants and the commentators, often when they're talking, they're making things up, that they've got a hidden agenda, actually that's going to be the thing that puts us in the best possible position. So we need to gather as much information as we can, recognise the limits of that information, uh, and then just re and then sort of we can start to negotiate where we are so it means being agile as well um and that's possibly one thing that publishers haven't always been good at but i actually think they've become a lot better at being uh, at doing that um so just as an example when i used to work at macmillan um we uh michael jackson died and uh within two days we had uh iphone apps out for michael jackson michael jackson's biography because uh, we published it years ago it didn't really sell that well Obviously, um, sales just went absolutely through the roof, and that became one of our best-selling e-books and um, our second or third best-selling app. Um, for, and it was also available on, on the BlackBerry and so on. Um, so you know, that's just sort of being agile, moving on your feet. Um, we also did a reissue of the book. That the reissue of the book didn't hit, hit the shops for three months. Um, so it was the old edition, just sold incredibly well. But um, the new edition, it took a long time, whereas we in the digital department were able to move very quickly and, and make a success out of it. Um, and I think that is the kind of thing that we need to do. But we recognise that you know, we don't actually, we didn't know whether anyone would be interested in buying that at all. Um, and it just so happens that they were in the end. Um, so I think that then is all I had to say on um, what we don't know. Um, but then, you know, um, as I said in the thing, like politicians used car salesmen and Walt Whitman. I don't really mind contradicting myself. Um, so actually then, what do we know? Um, so the fundamental position that I'm trying to argue here is that everything that we do is always a negotiation between the things that we don't know and the things that we do know. So I thought that, okay, I've said that we don't know anything, nobody knows anything, but we still, ha we still know stuff. Um, the big questions are the unknowns, but there's stuff that we do know that means that we then move between those two things. Um, the reason why I wanted to say uh, that there are things that we know is I wanted to explain a phenomenon. So I talked a bit earlier about how there's a lot of commentary and a lot of speculation. Well, actually, what you see with digital, I mean, go and just open any issue of the bookseller from the past six months, and you'll see that it's full of stories about digital. Um, absolutely full. You go to the London Book Fair this year and the Digital Zone, which already last year was a big singing and dancing part of the London Book Fair, is even more. And this isn't necessarily publishing, this is singing and dancing about publishing. So what we've had in digital actually is solid, steady growth. Every year, digital is selling more and more and more. Um, but it's actually not this kind of wild growth. It's a very stable, solid way that you'd hope to grow a business. But the growth is in the commentary on digital. So digital commentary has just gone like that. It's gone exponential. Um, so what I, wanted to, what I really wanted to know was, why is commentary on the growth of digital 
bigger than the growth of digital. And partly that's explained by the stuff that we don't know, because everyone's trying to work out stuff. But actually, it must mean that we know something. It must mean that there's some um, heat behind the light. Um, so what are the things that uh, we know? We don't know uh, how many people will read from a screen. One thing that now, mercifully, we do know is that people will read from screens. So the number of conversations that um, anyone in digital publishing has had about, oh, no one will read off a screen. How can you read it in the bath? Um, won't it hurt your eyes? It's, you know, it's just over and over again, the same old questions. Um, one of the good things about being in 2010 rather than 2007 is that we can actually point to people and say, yes, people are reading from a screen. People are reading um, on their phones. People are reading on e-readers. And people are even reading on their laptops. Um, we know there's a market for the books. I mean, you look, we look at America, and we can see that all the big corporates there, they've got tens of millions of dollars now coming in in digital, re in digital revenue. Um, I think it was, uh, one of, I think maybe Simon & Schuster said that you know, it made about $20 um, million in digital. Uh, Hachette um, published their figures that they've made in digital, and you know, on the back of Stephanie uh, Meyer, have made a, a, an enormous amount of money. But what it means is that there's a market for people who are out there reading on the screen. And at the minute, it's a contained small market. We don't know its limits of growth, but we know it's there. So if anyone's saying, oh, no one will read off a screen, say, no, we actually know that they will. Um, secondly, uh, we know that there's a lot of companies, both startup and big ones, all those ones that I was talking about earlier, from the small little iPhone app developer to the might of Google and Apple, who are putting a lot of money and investment, time, effort, people, resource into digital. Um, we know, for example, that you know Samsung just announced that they were going to re release a reader, giant Korean electronics firm, um, with just an enormous amount of weight and experience at launching products. Um, so we know that those people are all going in in an absolutely massive way. And that means that they have a track record in making stuff work and they're likely to make digital reading work. It's in their massive interest now to make it work because they're, they're putting themselves on the line. So whereas a long, a long years ago, there, there just wasn't the critical mass that there is now. There's this whole ecosystem of investment um, and risk that people have put in. So it's in so many people's interests to make it work. I think it's probably a good foundation for making it work. Of course, that is not to say that it will work. Um, it's just to say that the conditions are there and the investment is there that is absolutely essential for it all to happen. Um, well, so going back to the piracy, we don't know the level of piracy, but we know that piracy has had a huge impact before and that copyrights had... Um, issues of copyright, digital rights management, and that kind of thing have had a huge impact. Um, I went to a talk in Italy uh, a couple of years ago, and uh, it, it, somebody was describing how um, uh, the music company um, Sony had, had lost value, and it was originally there was the Bertelsmann Music Group, BMG, and now it's Sony BMG. Well, there was a time when BMG bought a tiny record company um, that was at, at the time it bought it, it was about 5% of BMG's business or something. B 
but it paid more than its whole market capitalization five five years later. So it you know Bertelsmann Music Group used to be a multi-billion dollar company, but at one point in the middle of the past decade, it was reduced to nothing. It was a shell. It was hemorrhaging money. Um, its lifeblood looked to have gone. And I mean, the music industry has slightly saved itself by finding new models and eventually um, working out a new way of existing. It's using Spotify, it's relying on iTunes. Um, but they are a shadow of their former selves. Um, the price of a CD in real terms has gone through the floor. So the equivalent for us is that perhaps we're already seeing a huge downward pressure on the price of books. Um, you know, if, if you go into uh, a supermarket, you'll be able to pick up a book for an extremely cheap price. Um, and if we have that, we'll not only become beholden to one or two people online, but we'll also see this downward pressure, plus, of course, all the lost revenue from people downloading rather than buying. Um, and we know this has happened before. We've seen it happen before. We don't know how much it's going to hit us, but we know that history suggests that in some way it will. Um, and lastly, um, this is sort of something different. So my main job is um, digital publishing, ebooks, new publishing jobs, new publishing ventures that we're doing, new ways of getting our content out there, new styles of content, digital first content. But also, um, I do quite a lot of digital marketing um, because actually what we see in digital is that there's, there's no real distinction between content and marketing anymore. On the internet, if you're marketing something, it has to be interesting, and that's when it becomes content. Um, and so, you know, marketers have to work with publishers. They are publishers, and like vice versa. There has to be all the dots, dots connected now with online marketing. So the last point is that public literary discussion is dying, apart from on the internet. So. In the US, even more than here, the books pages of the major newspapers are pretty much gone. I mean, almost to the extent where I think it's the New York Times um, book review is about the only major place for book reviews left in, in serious print journalism um, in, the U in the US. And I think that's, we can see that happening here. And yes, we've got um, a few little journals that survive on Arts Council handouts, but we don't have that huge sense of uh, being able of a public literary discussion essentially um but on the internet we've got loads of people talking about books if the space in magazines is going down the space on the internet is infinite and the oxygen of the publishing industry is word of mouth that is what we always rely on more than anything and the channel of word of mouth now is as likely as not to be on the internet um so people will tweet the books that they like and i might see that as much as um, I'll chat to somebody and they say, you've got to read that book. So we know now that there's a real space for books on the internet. And that means uh, we have to start thinking digitally in terms of our marketing, in terms of how we're going to engage with consumers. We know that the rules of engaging with consumers are completely different on the internet. Um, we know that we're going to have to change the way we market and change the way we think about marketing. Um, and I think this is something that you've definitely, well, I've definitely felt is that whereas digital marketing used to be very much on the fringes, like digital publishing, basically marketing departments are focused on digital now as much as they're focused on anything else, if not more so. Um, so a lot, of, a lot of marketing budgets are now going out of sort of the tube and rail and the print advertising onto various digital means. There's not a publisher that you can't find on Twitter and on Facebook and then everywhere else. Um, 
uh, Harper Collins, I was chatting to somebody there, um, has just employed a videographer. So they've got somebody who just does videos for them all day that are just posted on YouTube. Um, so I think we know that digital marketing is important because we know that discussion of books is happening every day, everywhere on the internet, more than it's happening anywhere else in the world. Um, so those are the four things we know. Um, so we've got the three things that we don't know are which platform will win, how many people will ultimately read on a screen and read ebooks, and how much piracy will affect us. But we do know, one, that people read off screens, two, that there's a lot of investment, three, that piracy has a track record of hitting us, four, that the internet is where a lot of the discussions are happening. I think, ultimately, between those seven things, well, I did think between those seven things, um, that was pretty much the, the, the really high-level situation that faces a publisher, publisher. And everything they do is, is essentially reacting in one sense or another to those, those different um, points on the constellation. Um, and so I think it's just a sort of a useful grid for thinking about what's happening. Um, but then as I was sort of uh, knew I was going to be coming up here, I was thinking about other stuff that we don't know. And I'll, I'll put it out there in a minute. Um, oh, yeah. Just before I move on, like uh, the one other thing to watch out for. Um, so I mentioned that um, I think a lot of this has an agenda and a lot of the growth in the commentary on the growth of digital is uh, there's an agenda behind it. Well, it usually involves a lot of buzzwords and I think we're all getting to the stage now where if you hear all these buzzwords and you'll know them when you hear them uh, that's just people making themselves sound clever um, and it's generally not wise to listen to them so um, I often don't now um, and I think that has to be said um, so the other thing that I thought we don't know well, I'll see what the time is um, we don't know what shape a publishing house will be um, and this is where I'm pretty much just making it up off the top of my head so you might have to bear with me um, we don't know uh, ultimately what, what we're gonna end up looking like so we know the shape of a publishing house now we know it's got an editorial department that does that and we've got a production department there and we've got a rights department selling the rights and all of this so there's a very sort of set defined structure internally to a publishing house and then also externally in, in the industry, and it's, it's that structure that you guys, I'd imagine, are studying a lot of the time, um, and that whole process. But given that there are a lot of these changes, and given that a lot of them are quite fundamental, we could be looking at quite a fundamental change in how that happens. So, for example, let me put it to you that you are a massive best-selling author, uh, a, mul a millionaire many times over, your books sell in phenomenal quantities, um, you know, you might be somebody like Dan Brown. Um, and let's say that we're in a situation, just a complete hypothetical situation, where books are mainly being either sold online, in a supermarket, or digitally. Now, in that situation, let's say people start coming to you saying, well, actually, do you need a publisher? Because I can, make it, I can, I can create a situation for you where you're going to have a much higher royalty from these than you would otherwise. Um, we're basically going to disintermediate the publisher. And then suddenly a publisher has to really start thinking, what, it, what is it we do? Where is it that we are creating value in the value chain? 
And I think many publishers thought, oh, this is never going to happen. And it, let's face it, we are a very long way from this happening because uh, a publisher is key on so many levels, but it's not inconceivable that it might. So then a publisher has to start thinking, well, actually, what do we do? Now, I read a really good um, piece on this, um, which I'll have to send a link to it because it, it's so worth reading. And it was talking about some of the different functions. Um, but one that we often discussed on a blog that I used to write for, The Digitalist, was how publishers will become more like marketing agencies. So when you think about what a publisher does is, a lot of it, and a lot of what a publisher says they do is, they create markets for a book. They will create publicity, they'll create demand, they'll let people know it's out there. But none of those, none of those functions are uh, integral to what a publishing house necessarily is. So I think if you've got a situation where um, your, your prime product is much more movable, you need to focus on what value you can add. And that's something that a publisher definitely has a tradition of doing, but equally, does a publishing house just want to become a marketing agency that's just hired out? Is that what publishing is? Um, I, I don't know, um, but it is something that we can do. Um, but does that mean we have to lose everything else? Another value, of course, is editing the text. And this article actually was very interesting in that it said, editing the text is not something that's of value to the end reader, because the end reader just assumes that, you know, we don't see the editing process. We don't see the copy uh, editing process. It's The reader doesn't care about that because the book is finished, it's there. It's the author that actually gets the value of that editing process. So in that sense, a publisher is just like a sort of a copy editing service. It's something that could just be farmed out. Um, it, it becomes just another little function. So I guess all the things that I'm saying are, a publisher exists of lots of different functions, but for a big author, you could just break all those functions apart, have it freelanced out, and the traditional sort of publisher as we know it is dead. It's just a series of functions, each of which in exists independently. Um, I don't actually think it's going to happen because I think there's uh, a lot of use in the critical mass, but it's something that we've got to watch out for, and it's something where publishers every day have to be thinking, right, actually, where are we really adding the value here? So I think more and more publishers are going to find they are really going to have to start proving their worth, and especially to the big authors. And it's, it's not just a financial thing. Um, it's a, a market building thing. It's about producing quality products. It's about getting the products in the places that are hard to get. That's going to be um, a lot of what we're doing. And so part of this whole situation, I think, though, is that publishers are starting to think, oh, God, can we really rely on publishing? Um, so we've got an interesting situation now where I think what we're seeing is a new trend in the industry is that lots of publishers are diversifying out of books. Um, and it was actually just this morning I was thinking about this and I thought, OK, let's just take three publishers um, and see what they're doing, um, who, who are doing things like this. One is HarperCollins. So HarperCollins has basically created a web industry within itself. So you look at the websites like Book Army, um, Anorthonomy, several others, and what they're doing is those are ventures uh, for HarperCollins that are existing aside from their print business. They have to work as investments, as websites, as businesses, aside from the publishing. Yes, there's a lot of benefit for HarperCollins in that if they've got Book Army, that means they can do good things with their books on it. But that's not the point of uh, Book Army. Book Army is a website just like a venture capitalist would fund any other website. 
it is something that they want to do to ultimately make them a lot of money. So they're now becoming a web business. Then you've got a company, Faber. So obviously Faber and Faber is um, very much uh, old, grand publishing house, very literary um, and very well regarded and has lots of Nobel Prize winners and so on. Um, but what Faber are now doing is they've got something called the Faber Academy. So they know they've got this great brand that they can use. And now they get people who want to learn about writing and learn about creative writing. They get them to come in and, you know, they, they attend courses and days, and, you know, just like creative writing courses everywhere else. Um, Faber's now doing it, but they're doing it not as a university, as a company, and they're working off their brand. And that's now become a whole new source of revenue. And then we're seeing trade publishers um, are starting to do other things. So Bloomsbury has got Bloomsbury Academic now. Um, but Bloomsbury Academic has a sort of very different business model. Bloomsbury Academic is, um, has everything published under Creative Commons license. Everything's going to be hosted for free online. So all of the things that a publisher would have traditionally wanted, i.e. the control, the lockdown, is intrinsically not going to be happening in Bloomsbury Academic. So it's a whole new, that's a whole new model of publishing that we don't know whether it'll work. And Bloomsbury Academic don't know whether it'll work because they're relying on sufficient buzz being created, time in, time out, by works being Creative Commons, um, that they'll actually sort of sell some books and then ultimately um, go on from there. And in fact, I just thought of another publisher that's diversified out of books is the technical publisher O'Reilly. So O'Reilly used to publish books about computers, but now O'Reilly is as much about conferences as it is about books. It had a speciality in that area, and it set up now what are pretty much the defining conferences in the field. So for example, O'Reilly run Tools of Change, which is a publishing conference about the kind of stuff we're talking about here today. And that is probably the, the gold standard conference around the world um, for digital publishing. And that generates them a lot of revenue. So facing this far off unknown future, I think there is now this slight trend for publishers to start diversifying their businesses. And interestingly, um, I think, well, it's either, it's either into digital because it's a new thing, but it's also out of digital. It doesn't matter. It's this idea of having lots of different revenue streams. And what I also think is interesting is that there's a lot of hostility to this uh, in publishing. I think a lot of people think it's wrong. I think a lot of people think that it's a symbol of somebody's uh, business having failed. Um, and actually, and I, I said this uh, internally at Profile, that I don't think it's that. I think it's healthy. I think of it's uh, a sign of publishers being clever, entrepreneurial. I think it's about widening the, the whole space around books and it's um, hedging our bets against the future. So I actually think it's a positive thing. And I think the more kinds of things like this a publisher can do, I think it has real network effects that will then work back into the core mission of publishing books. And if we're facing this, crazy disintermediation um, scenario, it'll give us more things that we can say, no, actually, we've got this, that and the other, and it's all creating benefits for you, the writer. Um, and that, that, so that's one thing that's happening. The other thing that I think is happening is this is another little idea that I've had. So I'm sorry if you think this is all a bit um, sketchy and just idea based, but um, I think it's sort of, you know, it's, as I said, we're dealing with a lot of unknowns, so we might as well just sort of make up scenarios and see whether they're plausible. Now, one scenario that I think is very plausible is the idea of retailer-owned editions. I would almost bet that within 10 years, you'll see Tesco books in Tesco's, and they will be Tesco editions, and they'll be Amazon editions as well. 
and they'll be exclusive published by the retailer. I think that's something that's again going to happen. So that's going back to disintermediation. I mean, it, it's a slightly depressing thought to be honest. You know, I have your Tesco value book, um, and you know, I, God knows what it'll be about. But I mean, it'll probably, you know, probably won't be Booker Prize winning material. Um, but anyway, I, I think that's something that's almost certainly going to happen now. Whether it's going to work, um, a say, let's say a retailer buys out an existing publisher, or whether they set up their own business and then try and go to literary agents and get writing, or whether like perhaps a web-based retailer might be able to sort of solicit um, writers just indirectly, which is what Amazon's already started doing with its self-publishing service. We don't know, but it's likely to happen because this drive for exclusivity um, from the retailer side is, is getting stronger all the time. And digital just accelerates stuff. A lot, a lot of the things that um, happen in digital, and I've said this to Sheila's uh, class before when I've been here, is that um, actually digital's really quite the same. Um, yes, it is actually the same in that a lot of the structure's the same, but things happen a bit faster. And so I think this trend of seeing um, retailers get exclusivity and almost publish their own stuff will increase and will, will continue. And my last thought um, about how a publishing house might change is that um, I think there's a whole new model that's emerging online. And this is the access model. So it used to be the case that you would, and this is something that I'm, I'm sort of turning into a little research project of mine. Um, but it used to be the case that you would buy a book and then you would own the book, or you'd buy a CD and you'd own the CD. And then we had this sort of period when digital came along and you would download a book or you'd download a CD. But actually what we're doing there is we're replicating a physical structure, the sort of the mechanism of ownership and, um, and buying of a physical object in digital. Now what we're seeing is the idea of cloud-hosted um, work. So Spotify, for example, I'm sure a lot of you are on Spotify. And you never own anything, you can just access it whenever you like. So why would you ever need to own it? Um, and you're seeing that with, say, Google Editions. That's the model of Google Editions. It's, you never download it, you simply access it through a browser. And that's what Kobo books are doing as well. Um, so I think we might be fundamentally moving from a situation of ownership, download, paid for, to one where we just access. And obviously this creates a completely different economics behind it. So, for example, on Spotify, that works. Spotify, whenever somebody listens to a song, Spotify notes that, and Spotify has to pay a bit of money to the record company, and then it's, it's sort of divvied up. But nobody really knows, firstly, if that will ever provide sufficient revenue to survive. Um, and also, it, it, it creates difficulties in, you know, what if your work's never seen on it? Do you not have control of it? Is it a fundamentally different experience? Um, we just really don't know how it'll play out, but I think it's a whole new model, and we can see the Times even now, obviously, with their recent announcement of the paywall, they're sort of realising that the idea of paid-for access um, is maybe the only way that it'll work, that the idea of free access is perhaps becoming more and more redundant. Um, so anyway, those are sort of three things now that in response to this other unknown um, of uh, the possibility of disintermediation that publishers are grappling with, uh, I think. And that was about all I, I really got up to um, on thinking about it. And I'm sorry if it's just a bit of a splurge. What I'll probably do actually is turn this into a PowerPoint presentation at a later date. Um, 
And in which case, I'll obviously be happy to share it with you all. Um, and I might try and write it all down a bit, a bit, a bit more ordered. Um, but the fundamentals, I think, are that there's no shame in saying that we don't know stuff. We've got to recognise what we do know, and we've got to think of some of the scenarios that might happen. So we sort of war game it, um, and uh, that's about it. But I'd love to hear your questions. I'd also love to hear if you think there's other things that we don't know, and there's other things that we do know. So, yeah. I don't know if anyone has anything to, to say on that. Well, I was thinking about the music industry, and every time I talk to anyone that's not in publishing, the first time thing they point out is that the music industry is dead. And uh, I, I agree with you that it has shrinked completely, but they also changed the way they're adding value to their products. They're focusing more on live performance and on instead of s selling the music afterwards so so it's it's more like the recording it's the promotion for the real product which is the artist can you see something like that going for publishing well I think there are a number of things to say is that um, firstly yeah so one thing that's um, been really good for the record companies is this uh, well it's not actually so it used to be that bands would go on tour as a way of marketing the CD, but now, of course, the CD is the thing that markets the tour, and all of the money is made on the tour. And what we've seen, actually, is as sort of music's become an ever more exposable, ever more easily accessible, ubiquitous thing, greater value and a premium is placed on the exclusive experience of seeing a live band. Um, so this is a, is a great help. And also, of course, um, you can sell all the merchandising. You can sell T-shirts, you can sell all the posters, the whatever. So bands have all this extra opportunity of making money. And one reason why it hasn't been good for the music industry is actually a lot of the time that they, they were never contracted in on it. So they were only doing the CD. They weren't even doing the T-shirts. They weren't doing the tours. And now, if you want to sign up with a record label, yeah. then they buy your whole package because they know that the only way they're going to make money out of you is if they are in on everything you're doing. Um, so, yeah, I think they did find a really good way of doing it and they've now made that work for them. Of course, the question is, uh, for publishers, nobody buys the T-shirt of their writer and uh, author events are sparsely attended. You know, you rarely get more than 50 or 60 people seeing an author speak. Um, there are, but I think it's often it's too small, and those festivals are. I mean, there are a lot of music festivals as well, and obviously they sort of they're great and they work. Um, but one thing is that those music festivals are bigger. I I don't know how many people say go to Hay, but I'm sure it's not the two hundred thousand people or whatever, or one hundred fifty thousand that go to Glastonbury. And secondly, they, that can create a tour afterwards. So I'd say it's that touring around the country, around the world, that makes a lot of the money. Um, and I don't know whether that would work for an author. Um, but it's something we've obviously got to think about. And um, again, I think it comes back to this idea of trying to find a new, um, new businesses. So I, I think ruling it out or just saying, oh, we shouldn't think about it and we shouldn't try, I think that's always the, uh, the wrong thing to do. So I think... If we can think about it more and actually think about what people really like doing with a writer or with their books, then yeah, hopefully that might be something that um, we could make work. I was just going to uh, suggest another example of a publisher diversifying. Um, Egmont is a children's publisher. Yeah. And they have a branch which licenses their 
licenses their characters. Okay. So they, the, and it's them that licenses the characters rather than they sell it on to another company who then licenses their characters. Yeah. Um, well, that's very interesting, actually, because I read um, about Random House in the US. Um, they've got to banter and a lot of science fiction imprints, but um, Random US have now set up a whole um, in-house department. I think they've got about 12 people doing it, whose job is to repackage and repurpose their content, content to sell to games developers. So the way the games industry um, works is that you have development studios who produce games and then these are bought by a games publisher like Electronic Arts and then the publisher, so it's, it's sort of a similar thing actually to in publishing where you've got a writer only instead of a, a writer you've got actually a studio of lots of people doing it. Um, so this random house business model is um, the difficult thing for a studio often is coming up with an idea that's going to work. Um, so let's say they could either do some sort of game for children or they can do Harry Potter. Well, actually, they want to do Harry Potter because everyone knows about it. And if you're going to invest £30 million in making a game, you want to know it's going to work. So they know that the game studios want to do stuff that um, is, is already known. They know that they've got lots of science fiction and children's writers that are already known. And so they're now repackaging it and selling it directly to... Um, uh, game studios and I think that's a really good business because the, the computer game industry is one that is of sort of still relentless growth it's really maturing in the kind of games and the content that are out there it's reaching a larger uh, wider audience than ever before and it's at, at, at its sort of base a lot of games are about narrative and storytelling so I think there's a really good fit the main difficulty with it is that literary agents will hold on to all the rights, well literary agents and of course writers will hold on to the rights and not give those to a publisher, which again just means the publisher is dis in disintermediated from that chain. Um, so you know, publishers would never have film rights. Um, and I think you know, when we look back at the history of publishing, it will perhaps be seen as a historic mistake that rights weren't bought, well from a publisher perspective of course, perhaps not from a writer perspective, but um, the rights were never bought wholesale. They were just bought for discrete aspects of a work. Um, and but yeah, anyway, I I think that idea of licensing the IP and using it creatively and reusing it and selling it to other industries is, again, another really good thing that publishers should be doing. And actually, at Macmillan, um, we did some work with Electronic Arts, and we got one of our books out on the DS as a highly interactive game experience, and uh, that was really interesting. What do you think the prospects are for enhanced ebooks with videos and uh, all sorts of added value into ebooks? Um, well, one one other thing I can say on this actually is at Macmillan, I think we were the first publisher in Britain, if not wider than that, to do enhanced ebooks because we did some in two thousand and seven, and I'll never forget. Uh, I think it was either the two thousand and eight or two thousand nine London Book Fair. It was Random House first publisher to do enhanced ebooks. I thought, no way, um, you're not, definitely not. Um, but uh, what, what we did there actually was we just added extra content in terms of n new short stories, extra illustrations, new introductions and stuff like that. Um, and then put all, you know, tried to get a good package um, together. And actually one thing we did is we published a, uh, an e-book that had a different ending. So it was like a whole different book. Um, but I'm, I'm, I think I'd add that to one of the big unknowns actually. Um, <laughs> Because everyone's getting very excited about it. Everyone thinks that there's a lot in it, but there's a few problems. One is that actually it's just extremely hard, labor intensive and expensive to create a genuine enhanced ebook. Um, 
a pub if you're a film studio or, or something like that then um for your dvds you produce all these wonderful extras but you know you're only creating a fixed number of products a year very small and you've got a vast budget publishers typically will produce a lot of products a year and for each of those it doesn't have a vast budget so you're only ever going to find that enhanced ebooks can be done for your biggest titles um so I don't know quite what proportion would that would be, but it's going to be about under 10%, I'd say, of the total books published by, well, maybe 10%, 20%. Secondly, is that there's also a slight question mark over whether this will be wanted. Um, Cory Doctorow is obviously a great uh, writer and thinker I disagree with on a lot of things, Um, but he actually sort of said that always... You know, he's a real evangelist for anything technological and he loves technology, but he always said, I'm not sure about reading online because um, when I read, I like to not be distracted. I just want to have an experience with the book and that's it. I just want to lose myself in it. I don't want to have to think about anything else. And actually, one nice thing about ebooks, I don't know if you have, any of you have, have ever used the Kindle or something, is that it just completely replicates that experience of just having engagement with text. And in fact, in some ways, I almost find on a Kindle, you have uh, even more of an engagement with the text. Because if you're reading a book, sometimes you end up just sort of fiddling with the book and looking at the cover and thinking, oh. Um, whereas actually on a Kindle, you're just there, you and the words. And does an enhanced ebook with all of these videos, audios, etc., games, whatever, perhaps it detracts from that slightly. And so we don't know whether people will react badly to it. Um, I think. In some books they will, and some books they won't. So, but um, I the and the other issue actually is that um, you can't. The idea of charging more for an enhanced ebook may not have too much of a long shelf life, um, and obviously then it it creates an expectation that books will have to have all this stuff when the economics of it just don't stack up because you don't charge more. You look at actually what the film industry have done; they they sort of realised this. So it used to be the case that every time you bought a DVD, it would be stuffed with extras. And they're like, hang on a sec. What we're going to do is now we release a standard version of the DVD um, that doesn't really come with any extras. And on any major title, you can guarantee they'll release the special edition where you get two DVDs with a whole DVD of extras. And that will cost, you know, nine quid more or seven quid more. Um, And that was that's quite clever. So maybe we'll, you know, Will that work? How much does that work? Again, I, I don't know. Um, but we'll certainly see a lot more enhanced ebooks, and there won't be any publicity value in an enhanced ebook anymore, especially once the iPad comes out. I, I just wanted to say that um, you know you said that this that in a way a lot of this stuff has no precedent, but actually. This, there is a history of all of this because, of course, there's the whole multimedia CD-ROMs. The CD-ROMs, yeah, yeah, yeah. has gone, really. But a lot of publishing companies, HarperCollins being one of them, actually set themselves up with huge departments that yeah. were just responsible for, for building these things. Yeah, and, and not only the, is the business gone, but you can't even run these things anymore because the platforms don't exist. Yeah, no. Um, um, yeah, and there was Voyager, um, and in fact, Macmillan also had a CD-ROM division um, that produced very costly, lavish um, CD-ROMs. Well, one thing I actually think about some of that is that um, there was no a CD-ROM. Some of it worked, and actually, the thing that really worked on CD-ROMs, and, and a, a big example, was Microsoft Encarta. Um, and... 
Encyclopedia Britannica were approached by Microsoft and they said, you know, we really want to do a big, we, we can get an encyclopedia on a CD. Let's do it. Let's make something really nice that everyone will play with. And um, Encyclop- Encyclopedia Britannica said, no, 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 we wouldn't do that. Why would we want to do that? And then obviously that kind of then, you know, they were hugely damaged because you people in America used to save up to buy Encyclopedia Britannica and they'd spend $1,000 on having it. But then actually you've got all that information on the CD now. So I think that sort of to me proves that there was something right in the CD model. Um, what it also sort of says is that perhaps publishers were doing it wrong somehow. Um, I think also a CD-ROM is perhaps too close to a book in terms of its um, delivery, um, yet not close enough in terms of what it is. So there's a slight um, mismatch between the mode of it existing and bit buying and so on and, and its functionality. So I think it, it existed in, a, in an odd land between a, a digital native thing and an, an old-fashioned retail thing. Um, but it, you're right, definitely right in that it was um, publishers creating multimedia assets and working multimedia and thinking in how they could create interactivity within a book. So yeah, I think that is totally right that there was a precedent there. Thank you. That's it. <laughs>